This is Mary Celeste Bell. Welcome to the Blackberry Podcast, where we'll dive into stories and knowledge of the incredible people that are part of the Blackberry story. You'll hear from longtime friends, amazing visiting personalities, and our own inspired team members. Today, listen in on a conversation between Blackberry Farm Brewery Director Roy Milner and artist Andy Saftel. Andy is a longtime wonderful friend of Blackberry, and we love sharing his talent with our guests. When Andy visited Blackberry Mountain to host a workshop titled Create with Andy Saftel, he and Roy sat down in the art studio to talk about life and inspiration. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, my name is Roy Milner. I'm the co-founder of the Blackberry Farm Brewery. And I have the incredible privilege today of introducing a personal friend, but also a longtime friend of Blackberry Farm, the uh, Bell family, and, and a celebrated Tennessee artist. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the conversation with uh, Andy Saftel. So, welcome, Andy. Thanks, Roy. Great to be here with you. Yeah, I, uh, what a beautiful day outside. We're sitting in the studio on, on the newly opened Blackberry Mountain, and you happen to be the first artist in residence at Blackberry Mountain. Uh, I know you're no stranger to being a guest of, of Blackberry Farm as an artist in residence, but I'd love to get your perspective on what the last few days have been like, some of your thoughts about spending time here uh, on the mountain, and, and some of the things that you did with the guests. Uh, like all the time I've spent at Blackberry through the years, it's deeply fulfilling, exciting, inspiring. But we're here on the mountain, it has a different feel than the Blackberry Farm because we're on a steep mountain where you can walk right out from this art studio onto this beautiful little path with a bubbling little creek and climb up a steep mountain. A very steep mountain. <laughs> very steep mountain, switchbacking with very nice trails and, and wander all around up here in Chilhowee Mountain, and it is stunning. But uh, the workshop's been a lot of fun. We've had different guests come in. We're, we're mostly drawing with pastels and pencils okay. on, on some beautiful paper and drawing most, mostly natural forms, but we talked about telling a story, talking about time and place and our lives and bringing our own personal story in, but we're beginning with doing some real drawing of natural objects and plants and things that we bring in from outside. Are these guests that had prior history in art, or are they all uh, Some of the varied? people have done a little bit of drawing, but mostly not. Uh, so if you stick a leaf of an American chestnut on the table in front of them and say, draw that, and I say, really look at it, you know, see where the veins go off the center. I don't know the botanical terms, you know, they're staggered. You know, the leaf has uh, crenellation on the outside and the, they're pointy and they, you know, so just really observing that leaf and looking at it right. and just doing a simple outline drawing of it, just to, as a way to get started. That's perfect. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm very uh, anxious to get into talking about your art and some of the themes. I've, I've had the, the privilege of, of getting to know you and seeing your studio and, and some of the great work that you've done that's, uh, that's been here at the farm for, since I got here in 2011. But I thought it'd be fun, since we both have such a colorful history of spending time in Knoxville, to just talk about the evolution of when you got to Knoxville, what the art community was like, some of the things that you saw there that attracted you to stay stay here, and um, so so when exactly did you 
come to Knoxville permanently? I came to Knoxville, I believe it was maybe mid-80s, 80, late 85, 86, somewhere in there, from San Francisco because my girlfriend at the time got a job teaching at UT in the art department. So we packed up the U-Haul and the bird in the cage and drove across the country and landed in Knoxville. And it's, it's been a long, incredibly fun and adventurous ride. I was scared to move to the South growing up in New England. Had you spent any time here before? No, that? no. I grew up in Rhode Island, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And I don't know, the mythology of the South scared me. Sure. And so I never thought I would end up in the South. But when Pam got the job at UT, I thought, Knoxville, it's green. I love the outdoors. I knew after art school that I did not want to go to New York City, get a loft, and, and live that kind of life. I knew I wanted to be in the so country. So you enjoyed being outdoors at this point already? Yeah. And I knew for my life I wanted to settle in the country somewhere. I had lived in Bozeman, Montana, ski, fly fish, you know, and I wanted to be in the proximity to some mountains. I don't like dry, southwestern type climate, so I knew it was wet and green, and uh, moved on over here. Where were you living when you arrived in, in 85? The reason I ask is I got here in 90. Uh, I went to school in Knoxville, and... and mm -hmm. I've just always found so much inspiration from the different neighborhoods and, and pockets of culture that existed at that point in time. Some of those uh, still do, some are no longer here, but curious where you lived when you got here. Well, we lived out on Topside Road. Uh, a dear friend, Bove Lyons, who was the one who hired uh, my girlfriend to come here and teach, found us this house on Topside Road, this little funky little dank little log type house and it was great we moved in and that was kind of out in the country then you know topside right right by the river yeah beautiful so area. A, yeah there was a big house i forget the family's name and they had this little house out on the property so we moved in and i could walk right down there was a little dock i could throw a little fly out there with my fly rod and it was it was it was a great place we lived there for about a year then we moved over to armstrong on e in no excuse me uh it was in East Knoxville off Cherry Street. I can't remember the street. But in a little bit of a rough neighborhood, we bought a house over there for a nice two-story Victorian house with a yard for $42,000. So we split our minimal mortgage payment. I rented a studio at Central and Broadway that the Monday family owned. Gene Monday was the landlord. He was a great guy. He just let us do whatever we wanted to do in there. It was an office space. It, that we divided and shared. So I had that for a couple of years. Then I built a studio into one of the buildings that eventually burned down on Jackson uh, on the second floor, a nice big studio. I built that whole thing in there, sheetrocked and wired it. And uh, So I worked in there for about two, three years maybe, and then moved out to the country, to the okay. Sequatchie Valley. So those were great years in Knoxville. Yeah, it, the, the old city, I've always had an affinity for it, just a, a, a little bit gritty, uh, you know, always been on the fringe of all the development that's going on downtown. It's been a little bit behind in my, in my estimation, and, but great art, great venues. Uh, we, we, we share a mutual friend in, in Ashley Capps, and I remember Ella Garouz and Lucille's and all these wonderful, wonderful artists that would play in the old city, and, and uh, I, I miss that element oh, of it. Oh, man, those were the days. 
So I got to town. I was working up at the university part-time as a preparator for Sam Yates in the Ewing Gallery, and I was doing, I was a sign painter, so I'd hustle up side sign jobs, little bits of construction, a little of this and that. So I had time, and I had my studio, and I could get started into my career, but uh, I was doing paintings on wood already, because I have a printmaking background. And I always loved the carved wood blocks. So I started making paintings kind of like those wood blocks. Right. And <clears throat> I went around. Uh, I had this idea that I would work with architects. I'm trying to be commercialize my work and make right. a little bit of a living. So I never thought I would ever make a penny at art. That was never my intention. I just, it was something I did recreationally. I was serious, but it, I never thought. Well, it can be tough. Yeah, yeah but, you know, I, so I always worked part-time. I always had jobs, sometimes full-time, and didn't do art for, but, uh, so I had this idea I'd work with architects, and I went, I opened up the yellow pages, I, I called up a few architects, and there was Pete Calandruccio and, and uh, Ben Garlington had an architectural firm, and they built uh, into that Hughley's building. Ella Grews was in the basement. Their office was up above, and there was some retail. So that was one of the architects I visited, and Pete Calandruccio said, uh, we love what you're doing. Uh, we love the idea. We, we might have some clients that we can hook you up with to do your painted trim, you know, detail things within uh, houses or commercial spaces. Right. Besides, there's this guy that's starting a club downtown. Why don't you Why don't you contact him? Maybe you can do something in there. So that was Ashley, and that was Ella Garuz. And so I went over there. What a great club! That what was a great, great club. club, man. Those years, there was nothing like it. Every night of the week, someone was coming through. Richard Thompson, Suzanne Vega. I could list African music. Oh, those were the days. So I went and talked to Ashley and. Uh, I built the bathrooms, you know, the built-in partitions in the bathrooms, but I really wanted to do the bar. And there was another guy, what was his name, Pete or something, I can't remember, but he was a friend of Ashley's and, and Ashley wanted to give him first shot and that guy ended up not doing it. So I got to build the bar and put a painting on top of the bar, which is still there, it's the fondue place, and cover it with the, the thick um, epoxy so I did that project. That was my first kind of. I art. had no idea you yeah. had that history. It's still with there. The club. You can go see it. Yeah, and uh, Neville Brothers opened that club, and uh, that was the first night. That whole band fit up there on the stage. They called me up and said, "We, we need a we need a drum riser for the Neville Brothers. Can you come down?" <laughs> like they were coming in that afternoon. So I hustled up and I got the two by twelves and the plywood and went up you, there. You and got it built in half a day. Framed a little. Oh, in a couple hours, I slammed that thing together. And then I went home to change and come back for the show. I get a, another phone call. They don't want the drum riser. <laughs> the music, the music world. But those years, I have to say, that's one of the highlights of my life. I met all these great people in town. The community was fantastic. Uh, the music. You know, you and I both love music. You know, and and uh, We'd get out of that club. You know, we didn't know each other then, but we probably stood next to each I'm other. I'm sure we did. And we'd get out, you know, one in the morning after some show on a summer night. You know, nobody wanted to go home because we were all so pumped up from the music. And we'd stand around outside, and one person would meander off, and the other, and finally you'd go home. But uh, after Ella's, I thought, this is my place. I love these people. I love it here. 
I, I am, love hearing that. I am staying here, and I did. That was that was a a, a moment for me too. In the early '90s, we, we had so many bands would stop here. I think because of the the work that Ashley was doing and and great promoting and and good good turnout for the shows. And I was I worked at the Disc Exchange, um, you know, indep- great independent record store that that also had live music performances in the in the stores. And I got exposed to, uh, you know, we, we've, through our friendship, we, we've both extolled the virtues of Big Ears and how lucky we are to have oh, that yeah. festival here. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, it. I think the early days of getting world music, reggae, jam band, bluegrass, just the whole gamut of singer, songwriter, mm-hmm. jazz, that there, there was nothing missing here. You know, a lot of cities had something missing in their scene. I feel like we kind of got it all. Mm-hmm. And that was for me, I said, I'll, I'll always feel at home here. I, yeah, and also I was never a small venue person. I mean, I was used to see the dead in California. It was always big concerts, Bob Marley, whatever it was. I, I never experienced a small venue, maybe a few times. But being in that club and you're 20 feet from the Neville Brothers and the stage was backed up in the corner and when they're done, they have to walk into the audience. Right. There was no like back door or anything. So you just talk to people and it was all accessible. It made it close and personal and uh those were the best of times well I, I, that, that that is a, a fun connection and it's it's really just gotten better in, in my estimation you know those were great days but now that the tennessee theater has, has been fully renovated uh, the bg theater is is part of ashley's uh, company. Yeah, the standard, the mill and mine. Yeah, all of it. It's so just many venues the, the, now. And, and during big years, we get the opportunity to experience all those mm-hmm. venues and, again, just mashups of artists that you would never imagine playing together. Mm-hmm. You're pairing a percussionist with an avant garde jazz musician and then some vocals you've never heard, a style. And, and uh, yeah, it's just very uplifting to me and inspiring to watch that happen in our city and see people come here from all over the world. And, and, and walk the city and go to these 15, 20 different venues. Yeah, and any one of those people, whether they're from Finland or Australia, they all say, I'm moving to this town when they come to Big Ears. And that's nice. People. I agree. I hear so many great comments yeah. about the city. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, it, it, let's take a, a quick step back. You mentioned San Francisco. I, I, I had the chance to spend some time out there being a craft beer lover in the early 90s, and the scene out there was just unbelievable. Hmm. I also uh, got to see some dead shows and, and, and a few other bands on the West Coast. Maybe talk a little bit about your, your experience in art and what led you to that region and what inspired some of your early, early days in the art world uh, before you came to Knoxville. That's a long life story, but to make it brief, uh, after I graduated high school in Rhode Island in 77, you go to California. You don't go to Brooklyn or Atlanta or Mars. California was it. I mean, if you're anybody with legs and half a brain, you just get your you ass go out to there. California. <laughs> so I went out there. My brother had been out there the year before, and he hooked up with a traveling carnival. And so I went out the next year and hooked up with him and began working in the carnival, which I did for three summers. So it's you know rides and games, county fairs. You move from place to place, week to week, all through the summer. And I worked in games you know, where you put a quarter down and you shoot the pop gun at the moving target and you get a little tiny stuffed animal. So you knew all the tricks. Yeah. You know, I was hungry and I was a kid, you know, and I was out and it was the beginning of my life. And uh, luckily for me, 
the unit that I worked with in Johnston's Amusements was filled with art students from the Bay Area. And so I got to know them. I didn't know a thing about art school. I didn't even know it existed. And uh, my dear friend Jack O'Brien took me down to San Francisco at the end of that summer, showed me the San Francisco Art Institute and his apartment, and I was supposed to go to a college in New Hampshire. And I remember calling my mom and saying, Mom, I have $1,600 I saved this summer. I don't need to go to college. <laughs> you were set for life. <laughs> set for life. And she says, no, you are not. You're going. This school that you're signed up for in New Hampshire has a branch in England. Do you want to go over there? And I said, hmm. She knows me, right? He loves to travel. So I said, okay, I'll go over there. So after Jack showed me San Francisco, I went back east. I went to England for the year, which was another story. It was a great year. And... Um, while in England, I applied to the San Francisco Art Institute. So after that first year, I came back. I worked in the carnival again that second summer. At okay. the end of that second summer, went down and started at the San Francisco Art Institute, from which I graduated in 1981. And then uh, moved to Bozeman, Montana, moved back to San Francisco, spent a couple of years there, and then moved to, to uh, Tennessee. Let's talk about this year in England. I, I just got back from London. I, I had been to Scotland and Ireland, but I had never been to England. And uh, I, I just I absolutely fell in love with London. The history, the people, the that's culture, a, yeah, the drinking culture city. over there is fantastic. And uh, yeah, one, wonderful art museums. We were able to, to, to go to a, a few. So yeah, what, what kind of impact did, did England have on you for that, for that year as a young person? Well, it was an interesting year. It was 79, and the Shah of Iran had just fallen, so we had a lot of Iranian students, you know, wealthy students that had left, and Middle Eastern students. It was quite a mix of those folks and Americans. So culturally, it was interesting. We were in Sussex, Arundel, Sussex, 90 miles south of London, and you get on the train for six pounds and go up to London, which we did all the time. And the museums were free. That was the first time I saw a lot of real art in museums. I'd mostly seen it in pictures and books. But we, could, we went to the Tate, and we were just all over London. Uh, so it was a fun year. Um, it, it was a crappy school, you know, kind of a low-end school, I think, just set up to take people's money. <laughs> but uh, I, didn't, I can't remember one class I had, but I do remember the people and the going to London and... You know, I became serious about art that year, uh, learning about art. I didn't quite picture myself as an artist, although I drew since I was a... But something spoke to you there. Yeah. I came home with a, the beginning of my art library. You could go to the Tate, uh, Britain, the modern wasn't there yet, and they had a, a bookstore where all the books, hardcover books, William Turner, Turner in Venice, and Dada and Surrealism, and big hardcover books for like two pounds. So I came home, I weighed wow. down with books, and so I was serious about trying to understand art history to an extent. And uh, so that was the beginning of my trying to figure out what came when, and who studied with whom, and who influenced whom, and. Uh, that's when I decided I wanted to try to be serious about learning about art and then landed at the San Francisco Art Institute, which was a, quite an insane school there in the 70s. I bet. I thought I was going to, you know, draw plaster casts, like, you know, and learn. <laughs> and 
So I go to my first class, and the teacher says, a painting class, and I'm in there, and she says, uh, she was a European woman, I can't remember her name. The assignment was, I want you to take the energy of your body and turn it into cool and warm colors on the canvas, and I will see you next week. You know, don't tell you what a canvas is or a cool, I might struggle with that. what a cool or a warm color was. So I walked out of that class shaking my head, just thinking maybe I'm not supposed to be in art I've school. I made a mistake. Yeah, and then I wandered around and went upstairs, and there were printmaking, and I saw people sitting at tables drawing, and I thought, okay, well I could do this, you know. So I never took a painting class in my life, and ended up making my living as a painter. But it all started with printmaking there, and I had a couple of great teachers. And that was a fantastic time to be in San Francisco. We rented a two-bedroom, my buddy Nigel and I rented a two-bedroom two apartment on Larkin Street, right at California in a good neighborhood, walking distance from the Art Institute, furnished for two forty-five. dollars <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I didn't have a credit card or a checkbook. See, you and, were set. You, you were right. Yeah, $1,600, you were ready. I was set. So I mean, any punk could go there and get an apartment and start your life. It's a little more challenging now. So it was, it was a wide open time and a great time to be in San Francisco. We watched films, punk was just starting, you know, the school band was the Dead Kennedys and the oh, mutants, what a great band. yeah, and all this stuff. So it was, it was a great time to be there. From the early days and, and since I've known you, you've always had this rich interest in history and, and people and humanity. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I want to get into that in a, in a little bit when we talk more about your work specifically. But were, were those themes uh, uh, an element of your early life or were, or were those things just becoming passions for you at, at this period in art school? I wasn't a reader when I was young. Uh, books gave me anxiety. My father told me that when he took us all to the library for the first time, us four kids, you know, the other three kids wandered off and I nervously hung around him tugging on his pant leg saying, Daddy, pictures, not words. Really? Yeah, pictures. He told me that later, pictures, not words. And uh, so I like picture books, Life Magazine and, and uh, National Geographic and look at pictures like crazy. But I was born in New Bedford, Mass. And when my parents got divorced, we moved with, back in with my grandparents in New Bedford, 12 years old. And my mom took us to the Whaling Museum, almost recreationally, over and over. I don't know why. And I loved it. I loved the Scrimshaw. They had a scale model of a whaling boat in there. And I grew up in Bristol, Rhode Island, for the most part. It's an historic town. And... Um, I've always been interested in history. I'm, I mean, I've always been a trying to fit the puzzle together type guy. What right. came when and, and how did we get here? These are the, you know, the, the questions I still ask myself. Um, so then, then I started reading a little bit later in life, and I love to read now, and I read fiction and nonfiction, but I'm, I guess I've always been fascinated with history. Even in San Francisco, I mean, the music scene, trying to piece together the bands, you know, and, and uh, the venues and who played where. And, uh, but uh, yeah, always been interested in history and people, what drives people, and how you land, where you land in life. And I mean, I, I'm, my job was to be a full-time observer of the world. Right. And luckily I found a way to get paid for that. And I'm passionate about that still trying to put the puzzle together with, with folks. But I love people, you know, and, and uh, even here at Blackberry, you meet all these very interesting people. It just takes one question, where are you from? 
you know, and 45 minutes later, you know everything about their lives and their children and um, their issues. And so I'm just fascinated by folks and hopefully that shows up in the work. That, that's always been something I've enjoyed about you. You're a great conversationalist and, and uh, you bring up a, a, an interesting perspective here at the farm. I've always felt like when, when I get the chance to engage with guests about our brewery or about our setting, or where they're from, the, the, the guard's always down. There's something about this place that makes people relax. It, it, it encourages connection with the surroundings. It encourages connection with each other. And uh, it is. I've, I've met some wonderful people here in the last 10 years, you being one of them. And uh, it, it is enriching to see people share their lives with you and, and not necessarily what they do, I hardly ever find out what people do. Yeah, for I don't ever ask them what business they're in. Or... And it rarely comes up. It's more about um, what are you thinking about? I always say, what are your interests? I don't say, what do you do? Right. Like, are you an accountant? Or I'm not that interested in that. But people are bright, interesting. Uh, I like truthful, authentic people. And this place seems to draw those kind of folks. But uh, wherever I am, you know, on an airplane, I don't particularly want to spend the whole time chit-chatting, but I'll, I'll ask a little bit and uh, try to find out a little bit about my neighbor if they're right. not so hung up playing Tetris on their phone. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just one little question sparked. Pe people want to tell their stories. All you have to do is ask a question, and you can learn so much. It's funny on airplanes, you know, as soon as they say we're descending into Knoxville, you know, people start turning around and talking to each other. I, I noticed that. In that last minute, like, everyone loosens up. But, uh, yeah, I love human stories, and even if it's tragedy. Right. Well, that, that's a perfect segue into, I think, one of the pieces of art. There are several that I'd like to, like to talk to you about. But I, I know you were just commissioned to do the piece for the, the new hotel in Knoxville. Oh, yeah. um, and, and that piece in particular... I read an article about some of your research that you did on Admiral Farragut and, mm -hmm. and what you incorporated into that piece. And I think that's a great jumping off point to, to talk about maybe your creative process of on a commission like that. You, you know that you're going to do a piece of work. Where does it start? Uh, I can start in a number of different ways. And, and I'm always conscious of not doing the same process. I mean, I may have 10 variables, but I never do them in the same order. It may start with some objects I find. I went to the little Farragut Museum out there in Bearden at the library and looked at all that. It's a small little room, but they have very substantial objects of his compass, you know, different objects, plates and things from the Navy ships. And so I photograph in there a little bit, do some drawings, write some things down, go to the library, try to find some books, with pictures, not words. <laughs> uh, the and then also, like everybody, there's the internet. You know, I, I love documents. I mean, I used to go to the Lawson McGee Library when I had my studio on Jackson. And I'd go in, I'd push some, you know, go up to the third floor or whatever it is, get a walk out of the elevator, go to some row, take a right, look up, pull a book out, and I'll find writings from the Dutch East India Company, you know, written in Dutch with translations. I did a bunch of work with those back then. So uh, it can start in a number of ways, but the, uh, 
The internet, of course, like everybody knows, you can find amazing things on there. So I say, David Farragut, handwritten, that's all. And up comes his all kinds of notes. Those Navy guys wrote notes to each other from one ship to the other. In beautiful script. Beautiful script. They'd write the note, they'd hand it to a guy, he'd row over to the other boat and hand it to the other captain. One of the Farragut notes was, this was beautiful and I won't get it right, but it basically said, Farragut's writing to this other general on one of these other ships. He's saying, um, do I need to point out to you, you know, Navy uh, uh, number two rule, you know, about ordnance and fire. He's telling the guy, you haven't shot your damn gun off, you know. Just, Come on, let's get with it, shoot your gun. But the language is, is, is interesting. And also objects. I mean, that was the Farragut Hotel, which is now the Hyatt Place. So... I went in there with Laurie Dover and we walked around and I pick up chunks of marble from the old marble floor as in that painting, bits of architectural pieces that, and um, yeah, so it just builds up. And I work on wood panels, I carve into the wood because I've loved printmaking and wood blocks and it all came from that. Yeah, I that. love that influence from your earliest, yeah, earliest experiences. Thanks, Roy. And, uh, so I can embed objects into these panels. I can carve in with my router, like Farragut's signature across the whole top of that painting is carved in there like a, like a funeral headstone. So there's a lot of relief. And so the process lends itself to accumulating objects and writing and, um, yeah, and so I'll just embed those things into the wood after I've carved some stuff in there and then I'll take it out to the front of my studio from the wood shop. I'll lay it down on a table, I'll start staining it with acrylics and painting in those areas that I've cut in, glue the objects in, and then finally put it up on the wall and start painting with thicker paint. It's layers and layers and layers of acrylic paint. And a lot happens in the process. It's a wide open process. I never have in my mind all the steps and stages and what it's gonna to lead to, just like life. I mean, that's how we live our lives. Right. You know, I haven't planned, how would I know I was ever gonna be sitting here with you having a great conversation, you know, and having a good friend. And uh, so as life unfolds like that, so do the paintings every time in different ways. So I, I really try to have an open mind and an open process so I can include everything. Hey, I might be watching some documentary and something comes on about Farragut, you know, and I right. can write it down. So even at the end of the paintings, I can I use an opaque projector from my old sign painter days. So any document I find, old letter, or even objects, I can put in that projector while the painting's uh, three quarters of the way finished and project a new image up onto there that I discover halfway through the painting. So the process lends itself to accretion. At there, when, when you were speaking just now, I, th I think about the parallels of why we probably both love live music so much. That element of curiosity of what might happen. No two shows are alike, mm -hmm. no, no solos ever the same. There's, there's always this potential discovery of something's going to happen. And uh, I think in, in your creative process, when I've shared your art with, with friends and guests and, and even my own experience, there's this, there's this beautiful element of curiosity in color, texture, content, composition. You know, that, that there's, there's not these hard and fast rules. It looks like in the moment you're letting the piece tell you where it wants to go. I'm glad you see that, you know, from looking at the work. My curiosity is, is the word. I mean, everyone's curious. I've, I feel like I'm extremely curious, really, about everything in the world. 
I mean, if I drive by some giant manufacturing plant, I'd love to go in there and see how everything works and see the machines. Right. And, and I'm terrible at math, but I love to look at equations. I love any human diagram, electrical diagram, music, musical no notation, anything that's expressive of human the human mind and the human problem solving, but graphics, it has to be look good graphically for me to, to use it. Uh, but curiosity, I'm just curious about everything. I'm curious about people, I'm curious about nature. I think all artists are, all music, all people, but it's my job. I and mean, I have to, it's been 30 plus years now, Rory, and like musicians, you, you have to keep living and living differently and finding new things for your work. I mean, that, that's, that's the crux. I mean, making the actual work, not that that's all fun. Parts of that are difficult, but um, being out there and being curious and finding things. Writers, you know, you have to be out there. You have to be living. You have to have something to make your work about. So you can't just sit around on your laurels. I, mean, I agree. I heard Richard Thompson talk on a panel at, at Big Ears, you know, and as long as he's been a musician and as excellent of a musician as he is, he did that piece about the First World War and his grandfather in the First World War, right. which was incredible with the Knoxville Symphony. And so, I mean, he got a grant in England. He went to the library. What is he, 65? I don't know how old he is, but he's still every day out there being, yeah, a, what a, great story. being a curious person. And I think it's important. I have two young children and, and, and encouraging that, that challenging of oneself that the way you've done it isn't always necessarily the way you're going to do it forever. Like there are other approaches, there are ways to see things differently and perspectives matter. I think that's what's so important about travel and yeah, creating true. experiences and ways to see the world differently because there is an infinite, infinite opportunity to process things in a way that maybe we've never thought about. And mm -hmm. that can lend to the process of creating new art. No, it's true. You know, and you always want it to be like the first time, like your first girlfriend and it's so exciting when I get into a medium, like I came here to Blackberry Mountain and Polly Ann, she's a clay artist who runs this art studio here. And this is gonna be a really substantial component here, this art studio. I totally agree with you. Yeah, a little more serious than at the farm. Uh, she wanted me to paint, uh, to do something on clay slabs, so she's a ceramic artist. And so I said, sure, I'd love to. I have imagery, I can paint images. So I had this crazy dream about an owl a few weeks ago. The, the six foot, it's tall as me, like a 200 pound owl had me pinned. <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, like I'm on my back in this dream in the bed or a couch or something and this owl is, has me pinned, I can't move. Its head is down by my feet. It's lying face up on top of me and its talons were up by my hands and the one talon had my three fingers completely locked. I kept trying to pull my fingers out in the dream. I didn't want to pull too hard because I thought I'd wake the thing up and then it would start scratching the hell out of me. <laughs> and the last thing I remember in the dream is I cannot get my fingers out of this. The talons, they're pointy. I mean, I felt the points digging into my fingers. I thought, wow. And then I woke up. So when I came over here, I had done this big drawing of an owl on a piece of tracing paper and I thought I might put that on my piece over here. So she had these ceramic slabs and I laid them out on the table in a big grid and I put that owl drawing on the slabs. So talking about being open-minded in process and being excited about something new like your first girlfriend. Right. Well, 
all your girlfriends. Yours, not mine. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I did a great piece out there. I'm super excited about it. We're going to fire it. It's got this owl drawing on it. That's so, so cool. That's the, one of the first things I saw when I walked over there after your, your uh, visit with the guest today was that, that tracing. That's yeah, unexpected. So I'm super excited. And I love to try any medium. You know, I walk by, I see some guy chipping stone, building a wall. I want to learn how to chip stone and build a wall welding, whatever the process is. And I am kind of all over the place in my work. I've always been attracted to all kinds of mediums. I love to work with my hands. I love to solve problems. And so that, I think that's gonna turn into a nice piece, that owl ceramic piece. That, that's fantastic. I'm, I, I, when I met you, I, I was exposed first to, I'd seen your paintings, but I was exposed to the tapestries, which I want to talk about in just a minute. There's mm -hmm. one more piece I have a question about that, uh, that you, you, you told me a story about it a couple of years ago over a dinner. And, uh, I just, I love that story. So I'd love for you to maybe revisit it. The, the piece for the children's hospital here. Um, I had the opportunity to see some of, uh, Susan, your wife's work and, and, you know, she's a, a curator and, and also uh, an author. And, and when I was with you, 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 you told me about this process of exploring the archives and, and being exposed to some children's work that, that you incorporated into that painting. And I just love that story. So if you could speak a little bit about that piece. Well, uh, a great woman named Carlton Long put together the, oh, the, all the art in the new East Tennessee Children's Hospital. So she and I worked together. And there was a space in the waiting room. Uh, it was kind of a niche, four inches deep, 32 inches tall by 35 feet long. And I just pictured this long piece hovering in that niche. Yeah, that's an enormous space. Yeah, so I, I pitched that to her and gave her a price, and, and they went for it. So I was looking around. I go to my wife, Susan, is a historian, like you said, and a researcher, and a bright, great, beautiful woman. Um, she takes me up to the Tennessee State Library and Archives where she does a lot of her work. And I've been there before. I did a painting for a guy from Chicago who was from Memphis. So I went there looking for anything to do with Tennessee. That turned into a, a great painting, if I say so myself. Um, so I went back to the State Library and Archives and I talked to the person. You have to go with the focus, exactly what you want. And you ask and they will just disappear upstairs. It's four stories. It has incredible documents and Tennessee related uh, material. So I didn't want anything written by children in Tennessee or about children, whether it's something from the farm or I can't remember how I phrased it, but that was my request. So they went up and she came back down with uh, uh, letters to Santa, letters by several different children, handwritten. You know, the mom says, write your letter to Santa. And this one was great. Uh, said, Dear Mr. Claus, C-L-A-W-S, <laughs> said, would you please bring me a zebra elephant? And I love that. You know, there were other ones like, it's the time too. This was uh, around 1910. They're asking for things like, not weird things like a, a lead soldier. One kid wanted seven English walnuts. <laughs> no way. I know. And then I mean, I, what a great brain stretch. I and, know. And that that's, that material lives on and that it can create inspiration for people like yourself. Well, that's my process. And I love that, that whoever that kid was, you know, is long gone. And here we are. And 
up here on this mount, Chilhawi Mountain, you know, talking about this little dude. But I thought, a zebra elephant, this is my man. He probably went on to have some, who knows, but I make up a story that he wanted to have a really creative life because he had this incredible imagination. So I took his writing, his handwriting, and projected it onto the panels, big, like each letter is about four inches tall, dear Mr. Claus. And then I, I made up my own zebra elephant. I just got a picture of an elephant and drew it big, and then I put stripes on it. And uh, so that incorporated that, that little kid. But that, that's kind of on the left side of that painting, and it, it reads left to right, 35 feet long. And that painting is in the waiting room, I might have mentioned. And all the chairs are along the wall, and the painting is like a foot above the chairs. So if a kid wants to stand on the chair and touch the painting, or that's you know they can. So all along the bottom of that painting, I have this procession of objects that I embedded, that I found little toy animals. I can't do tons of stuff. So hopefully that will add a little color to a time that's really difficult for parents and kids there. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I draw from so much of your work is that there's there's something for every viewer, and and I feel like your usage of color density, textures, and 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 uh, just as I look on the wall, there's some of your work up right now, vivid, imaginative colors that that I think inspire people to to see possibility. Well, I mean, I know that color makes people happy. I mean, I use color for a lot of different reasons, but um, look at the spring wildflowers here. You know, we saw a pink lady slipper this morning. You look at that thing down on the ground, it just makes you happy, a pink thing out in the middle of the woods. That's why, you know, people get floral bouquets right. and arrangements of all kinds of stuff. People love color. And I've always been charged up with color, and I continue to use color and try not to repeat or get into a rut using the same color combinations. I'm inspired by color in a lot of different ways. And uh, it's a continual challenge where I to, to keep coming up with new ways of using color. But it, color makes me happy. I mean, I do some black and white work, but as I look back, there's not that much. Right. There's always color. Well, you have a vivid imagination, and, and I think it comes through in a way that's very expressive. And as I've gotten to know you personally, I think that the work speaks to your personality and your outlook on humanity and life. Mm -hmm. Now that I think about it, my grandparents lived in Grenada in the West Indies when I was a kid. And so we were so lucky, we got to go for six weeks every winter. We'd take our schoolwork, my mom would take us, my dad wouldn't fly, so he'd take a freighter, so we got rid of him for a while. <laughs> no, I don't mean to say that he was great, but we just traveled with my mom and, and uh, you know, we're in the Caribbean, you know, you're six, seven, eight years old. We're going to the beach. We're going in that water. We're seeing the colors of the yeah, fish. Yeah, talk about vivid. Yeah, and my grandfather did this, all the shopping, so he'd take me to the market. The colors, that's why I love Mexico. It's another sideline now, but um, color, I think, originated there. I mean, I grew up in New England. It's cold. In the winter, it's dark. You know, not... And it can be a colorful place. But yeah, I think that was the beginning of my being stimulated by color. That's really cool to yeah. hear. Well, that's a perfect jumping off point to, to talk about some of the work that I'm most familiar with. And uh, when I met Sam, I met Sam in 2010, in September of 2010. And I came here for a one-hour meeting. 
and we, we both know that Sam had Sam time that, that we're familiar with. And uh, I thought I was lucky to get an hour with Sam and we hopped on a golf cart and we're, we're going around the farm and we're talking about his life here and, and I grew up in Chattanooga and, and uh, we, we get into the barn and one of the first things he, he shows to me is, is your piece of work that's in there. And he says, this is a great friend of mine, Andy Saftel. You'll meet him eventually. And uh, he tells me that you live in Tennessee and, and everyone that comes into the barn, that's one of their first impressions is that enormous, beautiful painting. And uh, it's always stuck with me that, that Sam chose that as one of the first things to tell me about Blackberry Farm was his friendship with you. Oh, that's great. And, um, you know, you, you, you've built relationships with so many of our guests and done work for the Bells and lo lots of other people that, that come to the farm and, and have ties and roots here. And, um, you know, I, I think when the tragedy happened in 2016, I felt this compelling desire to do some projects that really honored Sam. And you were the very first person I thought of because I just, uh, I, I felt like it was important to do something that spoke to this person that we both loved and adored and respected and admired. And um, yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, that process of that piece. And, uh, you know, after you so graciously agreed to, to work on the project and collaborate, I got to visit you in, in Middle Tennessee and on your beautiful farm. And you shared with me the, the, the pain that came with that responsibility and also the joy of getting to know a person through other, other mechanisms and other materials. So if you can talk a little bit about that process of working on that piece. Yeah, that was, that was difficult. That was, uh, and fulfilling. And I feel like it's one of the most important things I ever did. I mean, Mary Celeste approached me. Sam commissioned me to do a painting for Mary Celeste years ago. And we snuck into the house. She was there. They had her, the newborn uh, youngest daughter in the, in the little bassinet. And Mary Celeste was in the other room. We snuck in there with Sam. Just come over here, come over here. This is the wall. This is the wall where I want it. <laughs> Whatever size you want, you do it. That's the wall. Come on, let's get out of here before she sees us. So we had been through the process of the commission, and when he gave that to Mary Celeste, I think it was a poignant moment for them. I enjoyed doing it. It has a painting on it done by Mary Celeste's mother of the previous well house, you know, the building right. where Chris lives. Uh, nice angle. So I actually took that painting and put it in the projector. It was on a card. So it has Mary Celeste's mother's image in there, and lots of other stuff and at the memorial when i walked in the door mary celeste came up gave me a hug and she said i'm so glad i have that painting and it was about a year not even quite maybe three quarters of a year after sam passed away that she contacted me to do do a piece for bramble hall to commemorate sam and she sent me a box of stuff you know sam's clothes and letters, notes from kids. I mean, I pulled that stuff out and I bawled for about a day and a half. It's just so... We, we shared some tears together that afternoon, I yeah, remember. Yeah. 
And so I emailed Mary Celeste. I said, there's so much hair. I could work for two years with this stuff. I mean, it was a lot of really poignant. I mean, she knew the process, so she knew what I could use. I right. mean, there were lures from Sam's deep sea fishing. Um, and so then she said, well, why don't you do three instead of one? And, uh, but the Sam's time painting, that was the first one. You know, Sam's time, he does, he, he did so much in a day. Everyone would say, you know, he has 48 hours in a day. He doesn't stop. I mean, he, you wouldn't see Sam sitting there reading a magazine. He was up and doing. Um, there were some funny things in those, in that paperwork, one letter. I don't, Sam had a hard time, I believe, with writing and reading. His father's kind of the same way. You can't read their writing. This was a letter to her that said, um, or a note, um, Mary Celeste, you're the best husband anyone could ever ask for. <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't go back. He didn't take the time to go back and look at it. He's moving forward, you know, right. always moving forward. You know, I say always same forward. was like Hemingway without the words, you know, the way he lived. Uh, but anyways, um, I took a long time, maybe six months working on that. Not full time, but I just gave it time to breathe. and. I mean, there's a pair of his socks in there. There's one of his fishing lures on the top left. There's a, a recipe from a cookbook that they used in San Francisco when they were living there. And every page had stains on it. Every page, I mean, they cooked everything in there. Uh, they were having guests over. Sam was making some kind of a mushroom sauce, very complicated. And time's coming closer. He's getting a little uptight. He, puts the thing in the blender for stage four, turns the blender on, and the wooden spoon was in there. <laughs> <laughs> and so he had to start over, I guess. I'm not sure what happened. but So I have that recipe in, in the middle of the painting and a wooden spoon. So there's, there's a lot in there. And uh, I was quite moved when I came back after the painting. I, know, I came back maybe to do a workshop or something months later. <laughs> yeah, the pen. Everybody had the pin. Yeah. Kills me. Every, every guest that walks into that building is drawn to that painting. Yeah. It's, it's and a it's shrine. what it's a beautiful shrine. testament yeah. of, of, a, of a memory and a story on a, on a wall that guests can take home with them and, yeah. and, the, and the means of a, of a pin. That's a, yeah, I have them at home. I have one in my car. I have one right at eye level in my studio, like jammed into the outside wood. So when I unlock my door and go in, I see it. You know, and it, it tells me, don't sit around. Don't waste any time. Keep going, keep going. You know, don't sit on your laurels and don't ever kick back. Just move forward, move forward, move forward. And it inspires me. He, you know, he inspired me. And uh, I love hearing that. Sam one time told me, I said, now thank you so much for all the support through the years. And, and he said, we know you. We love you, we know your story, and we tell it big. I was like, right on, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> that Hang is on. pretty motivational. Yeah, it was. So I'm still motivated by him, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think about him quite often, and I'm driven by him and, and uh, the way he lived. You know, we're all you know, really lucky to have encountered that guy. You know, and in life, you think about this, six billion people on this planet, you don't know where you're going to end up or why you end up somewhere and who you're going to be in proximity to in your life. 
and we've been so lucky. I mean, the whole Bell family. To I me, completely agree. Know. So it's been uh, been quite a ride, and it continues. Here we are right now in the new, incredibly visionary place uh, up on the mountain here. Yeah, it's pretty apropos that we're sitting here across the table from each other. Yeah, I, we, we also we're, we're both so fortunate to to be the recipient of his his gracious hospitality. Mm-hmm. Not only did he move fast, demand a lot of himself and others, but did so in a way that 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 he took care of people. Oh, he yeah. loved taking care of people. Yeah. He, he loved to to nurture and coach and show and and share and all of those things he loved to do to smell things and taste things and Mm -hmm. explore things and get excited like i loved the boyish sense that he always had when he saw that passion and wonder in his eye of sharing something with someone else Mm -hmm. it was never a selfish pursuit it was always what can i share with you Mm -hmm. that will make your life better and maybe inspire you to be better yeah well i knew his parents before i knew sam i remember chris saying my son's come back from california you need to meet my son but I'd have to say his, both of his parents were exactly like that. You know, if, if, if you have something going on that, that they respect and admire, they get behind you and, and help you. And uh, I try to do that with younger people now. Um, well, so. look at the workshop you're doing today, spreading your, your passion for what you do and, and uh, helping other people explore maybe talents they don't even know they have yet. Yeah, and I think people are bold, you know, the people that, that come here and would do art. I mean, I, I see people sitting at the potter's wheel, spinning a pot. I had some dinner with some folks the other night here, and uh, the man from, they're from California, he was so excited that he spun a pot that day. You know, these are titans, but they will humble themselves and sit at a potter's wheel and be super excited about it. Right. So uh, that's, a, that's a good way to live. I totally agree. Well, the, the, I guess maybe last journey I'd like to take in the conversation is the day I met you, Sam was excited because he had told me about you, but I hadn't actually met you yet. And, and we had Rick Bayless here who, who had become a friend of yours and who you got to know. And, and you both share a love and, and curiosity for Mexican culture and, and, the, the beautiful things that come out of that country and, and culinarily and, yeah, and, and art and cult, just so, so many wonderful things that happen there. And that, that day you, you gave a beautiful talk on, on the tapestries that you'd been doing. Um, you, you, you spend some of your year in Mexico. I think it's maybe roughly half. No, I wish it was half. We're getting there. Okay. Just good. a few weeks at a time or a month here or there. Yeah, but maybe just talk a little bit about your journey there and and what drew you to spend more time there and and begin the work on these tapestries, which is where I first learned of this 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 person or this this notion you created of King of Falling Fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been going to Mexico for about ten years now, and um, First went because some friends invited us down. They were living in this little town up in the mountains called Pazcuaro in Michoacan, which is a craft area. All the towns produce different crafts. And uh, there's a printmaking workshop in that town. And the first time I went, a buddy that invited me down said, we can work in this print shop, bring some plates and some paper, which I did. They drove down, we flew, and we arrived and went to this shop. It's in a public building. state-sponsored 
and we made some prints, some little copper etching dry points. But they had a big etching press, four foot by eight foot bed. And when we left after the two weeks, and of course I loved the whole two weeks, it reminded me of Grenada, where I went as a child, as I, I said, uh, loud roosters, you know, the smells, the color, the market was just like the market my grandfather used to take me to. Um, and so we made that print, came home, and I decided I wanted to go back and work on that big press. And so I proposed to the Derly Romero, the, the man who ran the shop, now become a dear friend, that I want to come down. I said, I could do one of two things. I would love to do a giant woodcut, colored woodcut on that big press, or if that's not possible, I'd like to do some small dry point etchings, like what we had done the first time. Right. He said, let's do it all. <laughs> yeah, that's could, a good answer. You could do it all. And so I applied to Tennessee Arts Commission, yay for the Tennessee Arts Commission. And they gave me some money, and so I contacted Darley. I said, we have this amount of money going to be driving down. What supplies do you need for this amount of money? So we loaded up the truck. Inks, well, all the blocks I carved for the image. I had the image ready before we went down there. It's about the border. The print's called La Frontera. It's the border, so it's a 30 by 60 inch woodcut. It's divided in half. The right side's the American side, the left side's Mexican side. People are crossing over that border, stretching their toe out across that border, rowing a boat across the border. So that was the imagery. So we drove down with the blocks and boxes of inks and all kinds of supplies. And we got to Nuevo Laredo, crossing at Laredo. And I thought, oh man, please do not make me take this stuff out of the truck. And so they just waved us through, so it was great. So we got all the way down there, rented a house for the month, and we made the print. Uh, I had three people helping me. We immediately got to it, I mixed up. I brought a watercolor that I had based the imagery on. So I put that up on the wall, and I spent about two days, and I mixed up all the colors that were in that watercolor, 33 colors in inks. And uh, then we started printing on this big press. It's three blocks, 33 colors. The blocks are such that you can ink up different colors adjacent to each other all over the blocks. That's so cool. So you run one through at a time over the same piece of paper, three times through the press, and bang. So it would take us, uh, take, take four of us two to three hours to print one. So we could do three a day. We ended up doing 17. Um, the little character, the King of Falling Fruit, first appeared in that woodcut. Okay. And he was just a little tiny guy down on the bottom underneath the car. He's on the American side. He's moving towards the Mexican side, and he's reaching his hand out, and he's catching some fruit. And um, came back, drove all the way back with the prints. I think I came back with 12. They were uh, really well received. They were out the door in about two months. I have one left. Um, and so from that print, all the imagery for the tapestries evolved. And it's different from my other work. It's slightly cartoony. Um, so it's kind of a different direction. I don't want to say less serious than the paintings, a little more playful than the paintings. And then next time, you know, when we left after that month of the print, we had made some friends uh, through our friends from Nashville, the Brawners, who brought us down there. Uh, and so I said to a couple friends, you know, look out, we'd love to buy a house down here, which Susan and I do, if we go to Maine, oh, we'll buy a house, you know, it's a fantasy. 
So I told a couple of folks, and we drove all the way home. It takes four days. We got back to Tennessee, settled in. Next week, we got a call saying, this incredible house has come up for sale. The person has illness, and they have to go back to the States, kind of a distress sale. So my friend Dan Bronner was still down there. I said, Dan, go over to that house and take a video and tell me what you think of that house, because they had built a house, right? so they knew the deal. So he walked through the house with his little video camera. I was like, whoa, I couldn't believe how cool this house was. You know, Mexican architecture I love. It's all stone and adobe, inner courtyard. So you open the door to this house, you can, you're, so you're in. Then you can go in the door on the left into the house, or you can stay outside and walk up 16 steps into oh, the wow. backyard, and you're outside with walls surrounding you, shared walls with your neighbors, so you're outside. I couldn't believe this house. It was so cool. So we turned around and flew back down there and stayed across the street at a little posada and uh, ended up purchasing this house. So it's been eight or nine years since we've had it. And so since we had that house, uh, we wanted to get some rugs. So we asked some folks around town and they said, you need to go to Ruth's shop, El Harango. They do the best rugs. And so. We open the door, first thing I see, this took 30 seconds, it says, we do custom work, and I'm right over in her face. I'm an artist, <laughs> I have images, can you, can you work with my imagery? So she said, well, what do you do? And I started to describe it. She said, well, just let me bring, bring some things down. So I brought one of the small dry point etchings I had done, I brought a Prismacolor drawing and a little watercolor, three different things. She said, I think my weavers can do these, and so, Slowly, over five, six, seven years, we've done about 17, not quite 20, 17 or 18 of these tapestries. They're um, woven on a, a loom, uh, a horizontal loom that lies on the floor. It's very physical. There are pedals that make the warp and weft go back and forth. It's not like they can shoot the shuttle all the way through, so they've got different colors. Uh, Ruth, who owns the shop, dyes all the wool exactly to the watercolor. I mean, if there's six different blues, so she'll dye every single blue. And the weavers also will, I mean, they, both of them, the weavers and the dyeing, they could have gotten away with a lot less, like simplified the images and I would have been happy. But they, they both pushed it to the extremes and these things are spectacular. So the first one, I did a big, almost four by about seven foot king of falling fruit. So there he is reaching out, you know, and Sam liked the King of Falling Fruit because I explained it to him. I said, you know, this guy's reaching out, you know, there's fruit falling everywhere. If you stretch and you reach and you strive and you're ambitious and you go for it, there's fruit everywhere. If you have a bad attitude and you think the world's against, against you and you mope around, you get nothing. Like if you're hungry and you sit there waiting for a chicken to fly through the room, you know, through the window, you're going to starve. Right. So that was my theme. You know, it's just a hopeful theme about life. You know, I've been really lucky, but I have taken a lot of risks and I put myself out there. And man, am I getting fruit. And I'm so pleased. So yeah, so we continued for... Uh, it's ended now. Uh, one of the weavers has diabetes, unfortunately, and the other came to the States to pick fruit. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> Maybe inspired by you. <laughs> no, they're delightful folks, the Servine family and Santa Clara de Cobre. Every time we go down, we go out and visit. And we've stayed in touch, but that thing has ended. And I realize as I get older, you know, everything in life is a window. It's going to happen for a period of time. 
and then things end. You know, when you're young, you know, my friend Paul Fletcher, I grew up with in Hopeworth. We're going to be friends our whole lives. I haven't seen the guy in 55 years. Right. You know? So everything is a window. And take not take advantage like you take advantage of people or something, but take advantage of every opportunity. I've learned that from the bells. Make it happen. Go for it. Do it as big as you can. And uh, so the Tapestry Project was a great project. I have about 12, 13, 14. I've sold quite a few of them, but I still have a lot of them waiting for a big exhibit, Knoxville Museum of Art. So cool. <laughs> well, that, that sense of urgency and immediacy of be, be kind to people, but, but, but do in, in, the, in the presence of the moment, do your best to, to yeah. reach out and, and grab opportunities that are there for you and don't let fear dictate how you live your life. Let opportunity and curiosity. Well, you're also talking to yourself right there. I mean, you've done it. Yeah, I've been a serial risk taker, and, and uh, I, I do try to be positive. And I mentioned earlier, my children, I, I try to show them that the world is an incredible place. Don't be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. Go out and get to know it. Yeah. There's wonderful people and experiences to be had in, in all mediums, food, art, music, mm -hmm. travel, people. Um, and there will be disappointments. It's, it's foolish to think that you won't be disappointed, but that's, that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. is it, it's, it's not all great. And, and that's when you lean on the people that you love to, to help you get through that. Yeah, well put. And, uh, you know, you, it's not just reaching out for fruit, but it's reaching out for love and hugs and support. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I, brought a, I brought a beer. I think it's, it's only fitting that we, we, we taste a little. But, but that label in particular is I, I, I get to travel and I get to do things where I represent the brewery. And, and a, a lot of times we didn't make much of that beer. We only made about a hundred cases in total, uh, which, which is a small run for us. And we sold very little of it because I, 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 I didn't keep it for myself. I like taking it to events where I can tell the story okay. and share it with people in the moment. It's a delicious beer. And that, thank you for, for saying that. I, I, I love it too. It's one of my favorite projects we've ever done. And the way the project came about, I've, I've had very few things that we've done as a brewery where the, the situation told me what, what it needed. We, we sort of, we love telling stories, but we're usually the impetus for the story. We, we come up with something we want to tell, and we use beer as a platform to tell it. But this beer in particular, we, we, we had some beers that weren't cooperating. We, we had a batch of Belgian blonde ale that didn't fully ferment, but it was, it was healthy and okay, and we thought it just needs time. So we put it in our wood cellar, and, uh, and then we had another batch of Saison that we only used half of, and we didn't really have anything to do with the other half, so we were, it was in holding. And, and I got this call from Shannon Meadows, who, who is one of the farmers at Mountain Meadows Farm, and she said, I'm in a bind. And I'd met her through some of our chefs at the Knoxville Farmer's Market. And uh, I knew her. I didn't know her well. And we had never worked together. And we weren't using a lot of fruit at this point in time. But we had a, a desire to. And she called me. And she said, I have hundreds and hundreds of pounds of peaches and plums that, are, that I don't have a home for. And you mentioned to me once at the Farmer's Market that you might be a, a source for, for, you know, I need, I, I need to recoup something from all this produce. And we said yes immediately. We're like, however much you have, just we'll come get it. And uh, we, we went that day, and I think we got 400 pounds of, of heirloom peaches grown in this area and, and plums that were second rate. They weren't pretty, but they were the perfect 
perfect element to add to these beers that just wanted, you know, we weren't sure what we were ever going to do with it. We weren't sure we would ever even sell it. Um, we thought we might have to dump it, but we, it was a chance to give it a shot. And then when, when the two of us started talking about a beer to commemorate Sam and we, I had the awareness of King of Falling Fruit from meeting you that that beer just begged to, to have that theme and, and your kindness to be willing to do a piece of original art for the label. It's just a project I'm so proud of. And, and every time I get to share it, I think people understand that that's the whole ethos that we just talked about of mm -hmm. don't be afraid, take the things that come your way. Even if you don't know what's going to happen, do it anyway. You figure it out. And I think that beer is one of the most interesting beers we've ever done. And uh, you know, and it's not too fruity. It's just a, you know, a hint of fruit. A By the way, Roy, I only have about half a case left. I have a little bit more if you need some. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I give it as gifts to, to dear friends, and I, I love to drink it. And uh, I'll be so happy to have a sip with you. I only have about a case at my house. I think there's a little bit more at the brewery, so we'll put that Good. on hold for the two of us. No. Well, uh, I, I would like to first thank you for taking the time during, during your time here as, as artists in residence to, to share stories with me and all of our guests and well, listeners. Thank you, Roy. And uh, I'd like to close with a toast to Sam and uh, the Bell family and, and, and maybe get you to answer one question uh, after we take a sip. And, and I'd love for you to finish the sentence with the first two words of, I wonder. Salud. Salud to Sam. Oh, that's so good. It's so delicious. I wonder, boy, that's interesting. I wonder. I wonder where the world's going to be in 50 years. I wonder about a lot every single day. That's kind of what drives me. But uh, I mean, yeah. I, I wonder where we're going to find more of this beer. Yeah. Now I read a lot about environmental issues. You know, I'm quite concerned. Uh, you know, climbing around in this mountain is so hopeful. Seeing all the wildflowers and this, you know, dramatic mountain nature. I mean. I wonder and I hope, you know, that we can maintain and sustain our planet. Um, that might not quite answer the question, but uh, man, I wonder where we're going to be in the future. There is no right answer. Yeah. Well, you're you're an incredible inspiration to so many. You're you're a great friend to the farm and and to me. And uh, I, I just I feel feel lucky to have the time with you and and for us to have you here as a tennessee based artist sharing your work and your passions and your your discoveries and explorations through the medium of art i'm just uh, proud to have you here so thanks for spending the time with us yeah i can't thank you enough roy and the bell family thank you for listening to the blackberry podcast continue following the journey wherever you subscribe Thank you to our guests, interviewers, and audience. Dive into more stories, videos, photos, and podcast episodes on blackberryfarm.com 
and blyberrymountain.com. Make a great day.